Good evening to everyone. I'm very happy to see everyone today. Hope you had a good day, and I hope we're going to have an even better evening together in God's Word. Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. We're working our way through it little by little. You're back. Good. Slowly but surely, people are overcoming the illness and coming back. I'm glad to see them. Ruth chapter 3, let's just read. There are 18 verses, and Vince is going to be mad with me because there's no way we can get through them all, but I'm going to try. Try not to get hung up on the first few. Okay, Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash thyself, therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor, but make not thyself known unto the man, until he shall have done eating and drinking. And it shall be, when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me, I will do. Verse 6. And she went down unto the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thy handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, fear not, I will do to thee all that thou requirest, for all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman, howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee, as the Lord liveth. Lie down until the morning. And she lay at his feet until the morning. And she rose up before one could know another, and he said, Let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. And he said, Bring the veil that thou hast upon thee, and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley, and laid it on her. And she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Who art thou, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done to her. And she said, These six measures of barley gave he me, for he said to me, Go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. Then said she, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall. For the man will not be in rest until he have finished the thing this day. 
And the Lord will add his blessing, we know, to the reading of his word. And let's look to him again for help. As we come to thy word, Heavenly Father, we give thanks that we have before us a wonderful book, the very voice of God speaking to us. All the things that were written are given to us by the Holy Spirit of God. For we are told in your word that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so as we come to this holy book, we pray that we would indeed be guided, that the eyes of our understanding would be opened, and that the Holy Spirit would have complete liberty to speak to each heart, each life here tonight, to do with us as you see fit to do. For all of your intentions toward us are good. And so we give thanks for that, and we pray for your help. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, let's review. Chapter 1 of Ruth, R means resolve. Chapter 2, the the U, unselfishness. Very good. Chapter 3, where we are tonight, trust. And chapter 4, you got it. Okay, well, should we just close in prayer? I think they... All right, some of you want the outline for chapter 3, so I'm going to give it to you. I like simple outlines. I could give complicated outlines, but even I don't remember the complicated ones. So it's better to have a simple outline that people can remember than to show off a bunch of knowledge with a bunch of complicated points and subpoints, and then nobody can remember it anyway. So we have three points, one through five. Instruction. Instruction. She's receiving instruction from her mother-in-law. Then we have verses 6 to 15, action. She goes and acts. She puts into practice what she was told to do. She follows through completely. And then we have verses 16 to 18, expectation. Now, I did it that way because sometimes when you make it rhyme, it helps you remember it. Instruction, action, expectation. You could say it a different way. You could say advice, obedience, hope. There's all kinds of ways you could do it, but I picked that. If you want to put a different title on it, that's fine. It's not inspired. The title is not inspired. The book is, but my titles and notes are not. Now, when we look into this chapter, there's something we have to understand first, because we come now to the subject of redemption. And we don't really understand that, being Gentiles and, and being uh, living here in the West and not understanding the history of the nation of Israel. So we're going to go back real quick into the book of Leviticus, and we're going to see the two kinds of redemption that are in the Scripture. Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25. And we're going to read uh, from verse 23 to 26. There's more to it in this section, but if we read 23 to 26, we'll get the main idea here. Okay. Verse 23. The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine, and you are strangers and sojourners with me. And let's stop right there and point this out. The land of Israel, we pointed that out the other day, is called, uh, it was called before the land of Canaan. And since then in the Bible, it's called the promised land or the land of Israel. It's not given these other names that we saw. But the Lord reminds them, the land is mine. They're living on it. They weren't allowed to sell it or to give it away in treaties to other countries or anything else. The land belonged to God. And so he told them, 
Now he divided up the land and he gave each tribe land and each family within each tribe had their land. And he said, now this land that you have been given, you keep it. You, you cannot sell it. You keep it. It belongs to me. You are strangers and sojourners. It's like saying you're renting the land from me. I'm letting you live on the land. But it's my land. It doesn't belong to the United Nations. And it doesn't belong to anybody else. It's God's land. It says in verse 24, And in all the land of your possession you shall grant a redemption for the land. If thy brother be waxen poor and hath sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it. See, it has to be the kin. It has to be family. If any of his relatives, you would say, come to redeem it, then, he, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. And if the man have none to redeem it, and himself be able to redeem it, then verse 27 says, and let him figure out the price to pay, and then he can pay it. He can pay the price and redeem it. So, uh, we're not going to go into all of that right now, but here's the point. God made provision for if a man was uh, poor and needy and he sold his land, he could buy it back because he had to live on it. And at any rate, every 50 years, all debts had to be canceled. It's called the Jubilee year. All debts had to be canceled, and everybody had to go back to the land that they had in the beginning. And so the price of the land to, to buy back the land depended on how many years were left before the Jubilee. If there were 49 years, the price was really high. If there was only one year, the price was really low. So it all depended on that. So here's the idea. First of all, land that was given up because a man was poor, could be redeemed. It means could be bought back. He could pay a price and have it again. Okay, now come to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25. Now, these things are important because we have both of these kinds of redemption in the book of Ruth. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 to 10. If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife. You see this? This is a marriage. This is not somebody going and sleeping with his brother's wife. This is a marriage for the purpose of raising up a, a son who can inherit the land because, what did we see before? The land belongs to that family. And so that the man, the man who died without a son, this one that's going to be born is going to be called his son, not his brother's son. This is what's going on here. So he says, Then shall her husband's brother go in to her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead. That his name be not put out of Israel. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate. We're going to see the gate in chapter 4 of the book of Ruth. Let him go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come to him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face 
and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto the man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. Well, that just sounds, you know, like I hear you laughing and I know it sounds funny to us. But it was a very serious thing to them. A very serious thing. Because this was a duty. This was not lust. This was not passion. This was a duty. His brother had died and he had no heir. The family name was going to disappear. And so someone had to come in and do this. And this is discussed between uh, the Lord Jesus and some of the leaders of the Jews in the New Testament. This idea is called leveret marriage. When the brother comes in and marries uh, the wife of his deceased brother to raise up uh, an heir. Okay, so this is what we have. Land can be redeemed. And people can be redeemed, or a family name can be redeemed. And we're going to have both of these here in the book of Ruth. But the first thing we want to do before we go any further is think about how this should remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's the one that we call my Redeemer. My Redeemer, oh, what beauties in that lovely name appear. None but Jesus in his glory shall the honored title wear. No one else is my redeemer. The Lord Jesus in the book of Revelation redeems the land, the earth. This planet was made by God. It has been ruined by men. We have wrecked and ruined this planet and filled it with sin and with self-will. But there's a book in heaven and he's going to come. The Lamb of God comes before the Father there on the throne. And he takes the book from his hand and he opens. He starts opening the seals to the book. The sealed book in the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah was a title deed to a piece of land. They had two copies. One was a sealed copy and the other was an open copy. And that's the way they did whenever they had uh, real estate transactions. So when you come to heaven, uh, the Lord is opening this book. He's opening the seals of the book. He's taking back the land. He's redeeming the planet, the land of planet Earth. It was his by creation. And now it's his by, the, by Calvary. He paid for it with his blood. He's taken it. It's twice his, this earth. It doesn't belong to any man. But the most wonderful thing about redemption is not just that God is going to take back this planet. And when he does, it's going to blossom and bloom. And there's not going to be any wickedness. It's going to be what men dream of when they say utopia and a thousand times more. They have no idea. But the most wonderful thing is not what he's going to do with the land. The desert will blossom as a rose. Uh, the lion and the wolf and the lamb all lie down together and the children play on the den of the, at the den of the serpent and not be bitten. Wonderful things will happen. Wonderful transformations in nature. But that's not the most wonderful thing. The most wonderful thing is Adam's race. That's the race we all belong to. The scripture tells us that we are all made of one blood. He has made all humanity of one blood. It doesn't matter about all the racial and ethnic and national distinctions. We all come from a common ancestor. And it's not some monkey. We all come from Adam and Eve. We have one blood. It doesn't matter what color we are. It doesn't matter what language we speak. We have one blood. God has made us this way. We are a ruined race. Every thought of the heart of man is only evil continually. 
We read in, in Ephesians chapter 2, when he speaks about us, he says that we were dead in trespasses and sins. This is the natural condition of the human race. We have ruined it, and we are lost. But there's someone in heaven who loves us, and he's come down to redeem us. Adam's race is lost, but there's someone who's come to redeem us and to buy us back and to make us his own and to give us blessing. And that's the Lord Jesus. He's called that, isn't he? And we read that in Ephesians and we read it in Colossians, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. What price did he pay to redeem us? He paid with his blood. What do they say in Revelation chapter 5? Not only he opens the book and he redeems uh, the earth, but then they sing to him and they say, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And they say, For he has redeemed us to God. You have redeemed us to God by your blood. This is the way people in heaven sing. They're not singing about their feelings. I feel good and all of that. They're singing about the Lord Jesus. They do feel good, I assure you. But they're singing about him. He's our redeemer. So the land will be redeemed and the lost race of Adam redeemed. Everyone who believes, everyone who comes to the kinsman redeemer. We'll talk about that later on. But this is what we have before us in chapter 3 of the book of Ruth. The introduction of the Redeemer. Now, Naomi is educating Ruth about this. Because remember, Ruth is a Gentile. She's a Moabite. She came in with her mother-in-law. She returned to the land and she's learning about the customs of the people of God. And so Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, verse 1, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? This is a rhetorical question. She's not asking her permission. She's saying, Why didn't I think of this before? Naomi is finally waking up. Naomi has been, poor me. The hand of the Lord is against me. Uh, I'm being chastised of the Lord. Call me Marta. Call me bitter. I went out full. The Lord brought me back empty. Boo-hoo-hoo. Well, she, poor woman, let's not be too hard on her. She lost her husband and her two sons. I feel for her. But even when tragedy strikes, you have to get up. You have to get up. Mr. McDonald used to teach us to pray this way. Oh, Lord, help me. No matter what comes into my life, help me to recover within the hour. Get up. I don't always make it within the hour. (laughs) But... This is the idea. You have to recover. So she's giving her instruction. She's thinking about her before Naomi's thinking about Naomi and about what she lost and about how sad it is. And now the thought has dawned on her like a new sunrise in her mind. Ruth, I should look for help for her, for blessing for her. She's thinking. She's cogitating. Ruth has been off in the field working, and when she comes back, At the end of the day, her mother-in-law says, you know what? I've been thinking. It's time for us to to look for blessing for you. It's time for us to look for rest for you. He says, should I not seek rest for you? You know that word rest? 
That's the word it used in the book of Genesis when the ark was floating, the ark and Noah. The ark was floating on the water, and when the water sank, and the, and the ark came and stopped, and it says, and it rested on a mountain. It stopped its wanderings around, and it came to rest in the spot. That rest is the, is the word we have in the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, we have rest. We have rest in salvation and rest in trusting in the Lord. This is what the Lord offered his people, rest. And she's saying now, should I not seek rest for you? Here's a woman who's now beginning to realize a very important ministry. Because what she's doing here in verses 1 to 5, especially verses 1 to 4, is a a perfect example of what we have in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Where the older women are told to teach the younger women. And the word that it uses there is teachers of good things. It's, it's one word, really. It doesn't matter what the word is. You don't need to know Greek to understand it. We have enough trouble with what we understand in English, don't we? But it means teachers of good things. And she's to teach them to love her husband, to love her children, and all of these things. She's teaching her about her behavior and her character and her, re- her family relationships and her relationship to the Lord. This is the instruction that she's receiving. The older women teach the younger women. And it doesn't say the younger women teach the younger women. Because there is the need of experience and learning and having lived through and worked out these things in one's own life. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, we have a lot of things told there to us about widows, how widows should be cared for. And who are widows indeed? And it gives us a list. Let me tell you, if you go and read the list in 1 Timothy 5, you can't be that in 20 minutes. If you want to be the godly widow that 1 Timothy 5 talks about, you have to be the godly young woman that 1 Timothy talks about. You have to be that woman. Because the widow in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, who is that woman, who is a godly woman and who has cared for the saints, it's because she has developed this godly character in her life. She has lived this way. And now she's come to this time of life where she needs help. And so they help her. But these are not things that you can just do in five minutes. You can't take a a 10-minute course or a 10-week course. This is the development of character in the life. And she's working on her daughter-in-law now to seek that it may be well with thee. She's looking for good for her. This is a wonderful thing, just putting to one side the thing about older women with younger women for a minute. Just think about how important it is for us to get outside of ourselves and to think about whether or not we are a blessing to anyone else. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Be a giver. Look out at people around you and think how they can be helped, what they need. Some people, we, uh, young men we worked with in Spain, they couldn't even learn to pass food at the table because all they think about is their plate that they have in front of them. They said, look up. Do you notice there are other people sitting at the table with you? Pass things to them. Care for them. Watch. For them. Think about doing good to them. Think about the conversations we have with one another, the visits we have, our relationships. Are we seeking to do good? others? Are we seeking the benefit of the, and the blessing of others or are we in a relationship looking for a benefit for ourselves? Now she was getting a benefit 
She had her daughter-in-law living with her, working in the fields, caring for her, giving her company, fellowship. But now she's finally thinking, I should be taking care of you. I should be looking for something for you. And so here's the desire. Naomi finally recovers. And she thinks of doing something for her. So she gives her her advice. And the advice has to do with the kinsman redeemer. She says, is not now Boaz of our kindred? It means, isn't he one of the kinsmen that can do? Implied there is that she had been telling her about the kinsman redeemer. And he's one of them. He's our kinsman. So, he's going down to the, the winnowing floor, the threshing floor tonight. He's going down because, remember what we talked about, how they have to, uh, they run these sleds over the grain to separate the, the grain from the chaff, and then they throw it up in the air. That's called winnowing it. And uh, they usually have these things on a hillside or a high area where they could take advantage of the wind. And when they didn't have the wind, they had men out there with huge fans that would stand there and fan like that or bellows or something to move the air so that they could separate these things. He says, well, he's going there tonight. He's finished with the harvest. Now comes the winnowing. Now comes the threshing. Verse 3. Here's the instructions. Wash. Wash. Anoint. Dress. Put your clothing on. And go down. It means your nicer clothing, not your work clothes. Put your clothing on and go down to the threshing floor. But don't make yourself known. Just wait. So these are the instructions she gives her. I want you to think about these simple instructions with me for a minute because people are really confused when they see words like this word here, anoint. Particularly in the West, all we can think of when we see anoint is a ceremony. And a lot of people have gotten confused when they read in the New Testament it says in James 5 that if a person is sick, he should call for the elders and they should pray over him and anoint him with oil. And they think of this as some little ceremony where maybe they're almost praying in Latin, you know, and well, Domino, and they're putting the oil over him, you know, and they have a special little silver flask with the oil. Uh, we think of things like that. We think of it as a religious ceremony. One of my friends, he used to tease about that when he would, you know, back when they used to say Mass in Latin, and he would imitate the priest, but he would say something else. He would say, I can play dominoes better than you can. <laughs> And he would do his little ceremonial act, you know. Yeah. And the Spanish are that way. They listen to the things that the priests and the nuns say, and the schoolgirls change it, and they say something else instead of saying, uh, Ave Maria Purissima sin pecado concebida. That means, uh, Hail Mary, uh, Hail uh, Holy Mary conceived without sin. But instead of that, they would say, Ave Maria Purissima sin pescado en la cocina. Uh, somebody understands Spanish. <laughs> I heard someone laugh. That means Holy Mary, Hail Holy Mary in the kitchen without any fish. <laughs> it's just things that people do. They play, you know, children particularly play with words. So we have this trouble when we see the word anoint. We get confused by it. We think of a ceremony. In the Bible, now I have a, you can get the PDF file. You, ask, you tell Brad your email and he'll send it to you. There's, a, there's an article about anointing. I'm not going to give it to you all now because we don't have time to go into that. It would be a lesson all in itself. But there's two kinds of anointing in the Bible. There's a ceremonial anointing and then there's a common anointing. The ceremonial anointing was done with a special oil, 
a fragrant oil, a mixture. The recipe for it is given in the book of Exodus. And it is prohibited upon pain of death to reproduce this or to use it in anything else. You got that? Exodus. Let's look at it. Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. We're not going to dwell on it, but I want you to see it. Exodus chapter 30. This is the ceremonial anointing oil. Exodus chapter 30. Verses 22 and 23. Moreover, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take thou also unto thee principal spices of pure myrrh, 500 shekels, and a sweet cinnamon, half so much, even 250 shekels, and a sweet calamus, 250 shekels, and of cassia, 500 shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary, and of oil, olive, a hen. And thou shalt make it, make it an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary. It shall be an holy anointing oil. And he tells them all the things that they should anoint with it. Notice what they are. The table and the vessels and the candlesticks, everything in the tabernacle. And then he says you should anoint the priest also. Verse 30. Thou shalt anoint Aaron and his sons. Not everybody in the congregation. Not the sick people. Aaron and his sons. And then he says in verse uh, 32. Upon man's flesh it shall not be poured. Neither shall you make any other like it after the composition of it. It is holy. And it shall be holy unto you. Whosoever compoundeth any like it. Or whosoever putteth any of it upon a stranger shall even be cut off from among his people. So this is not something you go around anointing people with. This is a holy anointing oil. It was a ceremony. They used it for the tabernacle. They used it for the priest, for Aaron and his sons. They used it for the kings. Uh, they anointed the king to reign over Israel. Uh, the Lord told Samuel, take the oil, take the horn of oil and go and anoint David. Remember that? That's an example of the divinely directed use of this oil. And, uh, and there were occasions when prophets also were anointed with this oil. But that's it in the Old Testament. Now you can get the article and read the rest of it. Then there's the common use of oil. The daily use of it. It's what you would, in those days, if they had had something like bed, bath, and beyond... You would have bought this there. Now, all the ladies here, they already know what I'm talking about because the ladies are champions of perfumes and colognes and oils and lotions and scented, fragrant this and that. They are experts at all of that. When I was in Turkey, uh, living in Turkey, I rode the bus on several occasions from one part of Turkey, from Adana to Ankara, which is the capital, and I was the only foreigner on the bus. Everybody else was a Turk but literally a Turk. And um, we were riding the bus, and about every three hours the bus would stop. It's a scary experience to ride this bus because they pass on mountain curves with no guardrail. They'll pass. They just, inshallah. You know, if God wills, I'll make it. And if he doesn't, I wouldn't make it anyway. So they just pass anyway. I sat right behind the driver. I didn't rest any. But every three hours they stop, and they let everybody have chai, which is tea, and you have an opportunity to go to the bathroom if you need to. Then you get back on the bus. And then there's a boy who comes through the bus and he has a bottle 
It looks like one of these long, uh, thin bottles with a cap, a pointed cap on it, like you would maybe put mustard or something like that in, you know, one of these kind. But it has a scented oil in it. Well, I didn't know what this was. I'd never seen it before. So I'm sitting there on the bus, and I'm just watching what they're doing. So he's coming down the aisle of the bus, and, and all the passengers are holding out their hands like this. So they're holding out their hands, and he squirts some on their hands, and they rub it on the light. I'm going to knock the microphone off. Forgot I had that. And uh, then on their face and all. So when he gets to me, I just copied everybody else. I had no idea what I was doing. I held my hands out. He squirted some in there, and I did all of this, you know. And This is what you do. Because we're riding the bus all day together and nobody can take a bath. So the scented, the fragrant oil, it's like a very light olive oil. It's like a lotion, but it is an oil that has some kind of a perfume or a scent in it. And this is what they use. When I saw that, I suddenly thought about what the scripture is talking about. How many times in the Bible it talks about people anointing themselves? If they, if they didn't have the fragrance, at least they put the olive oil, just plain olive oil. They put that on them to care for their skin. It's a hot and dry climate. And they care for their skin. And olive oil is known also, rubbing it on, uh, it'll take care of some problems and ailments of the skin. Besides being good for the digestion and tasty. But it works on the outside of the body as well. So this is what they're doing. Now we have this in the Old Testament. We have it in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 28, verse 40, he reminds them they're going to be punished if they disobey God, and they're not going to have uh, they're not going to have a harvest, and their olive trees are not going to produce olives. He says in verse 40, uh, thou uh, 28:40, thou shalt have olive trees throughout all thy coast, but thou shalt not anoint thyself with the oil, for thy olive shall cast his fruit. The olive tree is going to drop the fruit. They're not going to have the olives. They're not going to have olive oil. They're not going to be able to anoint themselves. What anoint themselves? I can play dominoes better than you. No, not that. The daily anointing. It's the hygiene. It's the personal care. You're not going to have the olive oil to do that. When you come to Amos chapter 6, come with me quickly. Amos chapter 6. Well, it's also in Ezekiel, but we're not going to go there. You can write it down. Ezekiel chapter 16. We have the words wash, anoint, and dress. The same words out of Ruth in Ezekiel 16 verse 9. But now I'm interested in Amos 6, 6 where we read, uh, there, it's woe unto those, uh, Ye who put far away the evil day, that lie on beds of ivory, etc. And in verse 6 he says, That drink wine and bowls, and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Jacob. That's anointing. That's the same word that comes out in the book of Ruth. Wash and anoint yourself. They anoint themselves with the chief ointments. Well, these ointments are the lotions... And the things that, that people use. And they had all of this highly developed in the world of that day. And they said, this is what these rich people do. They don't care anything about the spiritual condition of the nation. They're just lounging around in their palaces and eating the best food and using all these expensive ointments on them, anointing themselves. They're not having ceremonies. They're talking about spending top dollar 
to have the things that take care of their body. New Testament, Matthew chapter 6. And then I'm going to leave it because otherwise I already know what's going to happen. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 17. All of this and more is in the article, so you get it and read it if you're interested. He's giving instructions on fasting, the Lord is, and he says, But when thou, but thou when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face. He's saying, don't go around with a sad face and be disheveled and have an unkept appearance so that people will see that you're fasting. He said, do your normal daily hygiene, wash, anoint yourself, look well kept and presentable. Don't walk around all disheveled and sad and smelly and so that people will notice that you're fasting. The fasting is a secret between you and God. And he will see it and reward you. This is what he's talking about. When he went in, when the Lord in, in Luke 12 went into Simon's house, he said, My head you did not anoint with oil. He didn't mean Simon should have had a little ceremony for him when he came in. It was the common thing. They washed their feet they, because their feet were dirty. They had a servant to do it or people could do it uh, for their guests. And they had the oil they could put on them and they gave them a kiss to welcome them. He said, I got none of this when I came to your house. He wasn't talking about a ceremony. So when you come over to the book of James and you have this pray and anoint him with oil, it says there, and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. It doesn't say anything about the oil. Because the oil is just simply, he's saying, they're praying for him, and they're saying, now, get up and wash and anoint yourself. Put on your, do your daily hygiene routine, get up. This is what they're doing in anticipation of the person having relief in answer to prayer. And so that was an act of faith on the part of the men that were there with him. So she says, wash and anoint yourself and go down to the threshing floor. And she says, and don't show yourself. Don't be precocious. Just wait until you see when they're done with everything. Don't go in there in front of everybody. Oh, hello. Well, where's Boaz? Can I talk to Boaz? It's not that. You just go and wait. This is not something public. This is private between you and him. Don't put him in a, in a difficult situation by saying all of these things to him in front of everyone else. Wait. And when he lies down, then you can go and talk to him. So she's giving her instructions about how to do this. And she says, uncover his feet. She didn't say pull the blanket off of him and cuddle up to him. This is not that. And we need to be careful not to read with a suggestive mind. When we read the things that happen here, she's at his feet. That's all. She uncovered his feet. That's all. And she stayed at his feet all night. That's all there was. But here's the beautiful thing. Verse 5. She said unto her, all that thou sayest unto me, I will do. Isn't that beautiful? Where did we hear that before? Anybody remember last week? Where did we hear that before? Yeah, Jeremiah 42. There it is. Oh, let's consult the Lord our God. Whatever He says that we should do, we will do it. Oh, it sounded so beautiful, didn't it? In fact, I think it would be a good, good idea to memorize those words. They are beautiful, spiritual words. But the trouble is, it didn't mean anything to the people that said it. Well, this woman doesn't go on and on. She says, all that you said I will do. 
What did the Lord Jesus say to us in the New Testament? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord? You come and worship me. You sing songs to me and songs about me. You read things about me. You call me Lord when you pray to me, but you don't do what I say. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? This is to her mother-in-law. Are you with me? Her mother-in-law has given her advice. Go down to the threshing floor and wait. Just hold back and wait. And when he's uh, finished and he's uh, resting for the night, go uncover his feet and lie down there at his feet. And she's going to be like the girls today. And she's going to say, Ew, I'm not doing gross. I'm not doing that. Oh, he's not my type. He's an old man. I'll pick my own friends. Thank you. She's going to say, well, Naomi, you know, I love you, but you have this problem. You meddle in my life. I'm an adult. I'm an adult. Let me live my own life. Naomi's doing what Titus 2 says she should do. And Ruth is doing what the scripture says that she should do. The younger women learn from the older women. And young men, I might as well say, learn from older men. When in the country I live in and in countries I travel to, when they have oxen that are plowing in the fields, and the young oxen are growing up and getting strong and they're ready to start plowing, what do they do? They put the young ox in the yoke with the old ox. They put them together, the old and the young. Because the old one has learned how to plow. He's learned at what pace he's supposed to walk. He's learned to respond to the commands of the farmer. And so the young ox goes with him. He's in the yoke with him. And as he goes along, he learns because the older ox is marking the pace and giving the behavior. And that's how the young ox learns with the old one. And young men learn with older men. You don't learn with younger men. If you want to grow spiritually, men, women, listen to me. Don't just hang around always with people of your own age. Oh, I'm not against having friends your own age. Don't misinterpret me. But if you want to grow spiritually, you need to be with people who can take you a little farther along. With people who have seen a little farther. And maybe they can't play all the games you can play and use all the electronic gadgets that you can use. But they have the wisdom and the experience and the foresight that a lot of times has come from learning lessons the hard way and the in the in life and they can help you young people are great at giving each other advice i said we raised seven they love to give each other advice tell each other what they ought to do about their career about their friendships about their romances about everything they give it they're great advice givers to each other but they're at the same place you're at they don't even they don't know how it's all going to work out they think they might have good intentions But you need this input from older people. And she says, all that you said to me, I will do. I love that. What did the Lord say to Joshua? This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. What did he say that he should do? To meditate on it and to do according to all that is written therein. And he promised a blessing. What did the Lord Jesus say in Matthew 28? 
Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Here's that word, all, again. There's no minor doctrines that don't need our attention or obedience in the Bible. She says, all that you said I will do. Verse 6, and she went down under the floor. That means the threshing floor. She went down and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. So here's the action. Verses 6 to 15, the action. Very simple. She went and did everything. This is one of the reasons why I love Ruth. Because a lot of people that say it, but then they don't do it. They make promises. And they'll stand up in the meeting or after a meeting and say, I promise, I'm making a commitment to the Lord. And, and three months later, they're gone again. Or they're back in the same old stuff again. What happened? Here's a woman who we saw in chapter 1 was steadfast minded. She stuck to it and she said, don't try to persuade me to go back. My mind is made up. And now she's listening to her mother-in-law telling her strange things that she should do. That's not from her culture. And with a man who's much older than her, who's calling her my daughter. I'll do everything you said. This is why the letter for chapter 3 is T. Trust. Trust. Listen to me. You do not have to. I'm including myself, so I'll say we. We do not have to. To understand everything in order to be able to do it. What we have to do is trust God. That doesn't mean we just have to do whatever anybody tells us. But I want you to remember the advice that she's getting from her mother-in-law is from this book. We read it in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. She's getting godly counsel from the Word of God. And she says, I'll do it all. She didn't say, well, I don't agree with some of those points, but I'll do some of it. Uh, Can we reach a compromise here? She does it all. And she went and followed through on everything. You know why Ruth got blessed? Because she trusted. And we sing it, don't we? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You want an Old Testament example? Here it is. If she didn't do what her mother-in-law said, if she said, ooh, or if she went down there to the threshing floor and chickened out, And she came back home and said, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I just, I'm not that kind of person. I can't do that. You don't understand me. I can't do that. And blah, blah, blah. Suppose she had done any of that. Then there's no chapter four. Then there's no chapter four. There's no honor. There's no blessing. She got it because she trusted and obeyed. And God wants us to learn to trust and obey. Didn't we read that in the book of Jeremiah? Didn't we read that in the Old Testament where he said, This is what I said to you when I brought you out of the land of Israel. Obey my voice, he said. Because God is not some mean monster or ogre who's going to get you into a corner and get you to agree to do anything. Aha, I got you now. I'm going to make your life miserable. He's not doing that. He wants to bless us. If we obey him, we get blessing. In the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Leviticus, he puts before them the way of blessing and the way of cursing. The way of life and the way of death. And what is the way of life and blessing? 
to obey the things that God has said that they should do. You want to know what the secret is to blessing in your life? Know what God says and do it. God cannot bless disobedient people. People who are so full of their own will and their own plans that they can't let the Almighty God, the Creator of heaven and earth, and the One who's given us life, direct their lives. And you know why they don't do it? You know why people don't do it? You know why they don't commit themselves to Jesus Christ? You know why people who say that they believe in Him live their own lives and go their own way and get into so many difficult situations? You know why it is? I'm going to tell you why it is. It's because they don't trust God. They're willing to trust Him, some of them, for something like forgiveness of sin but not to direct my life, and certainly not my romantic life, certainly not my married life, certainly not my business life, certainly not my friends. Did you know in the New Testament, the Scripture tells uh, Timothy, and through him, us, what kind of people should be our friends? God has a right to choose everything about us. I'll tell you why. Because it says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20, You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Brother, sister, tonight, we need to be reminded, you gave up your rights at the foot of the cross. I gave up my rights at the foot of the cross. We're not ours. Now, God wants to bless us, but we have to trust him every step of the way. There's hymns about that, too. Trusting Jesus, that is all. We don't sing those too much anymore. Here's the action. She goes and does everything that her mother-in-law suggested that she should do. And at midnight, this man wakes up. And uh, we should see here, when it's talking about him in verse 7, it says, When he had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. Don't think he was drunk. Don't get, don't get drunkenness out of that. It means he's happy. They had the work at the harvest. They had a mountain of grain. They had all their work done and he's, he's laying down because it's the days of the judges. If you go back into town to sleep, you come back out, the grain will all be stolen. There won't be anything there. So they sleep by it at night to make sure nobody steals it. So he's sleeping there, but he's happy. The work's done. What did he drink? What did he drink? Go back to chapter 1. How many times do we say, look in the Bible for the answer? Chapter 1, verse 9. If you are thirst, go to the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. What were the young men drawing? Water out of the well. And what were they drinking? They were eating and drinking the water. They were drinking the water from the well. And they're happy because the work is done. And he's laying down to go to sleep. He's not drunk. And she uncovers his feet. Says she came softly. She's not a raucous woman. She's a quiet woman. She came softly. She's a humble woman. And she did exactly what her mother-in-law told her. She uncovered his feet, that's all, and she laid herself down right there. And he was frightened at midnight, it says. It came to pass at midnight, verse 8. The man was afraid and turned himself. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He probably went, oh, who's that? I could tell you some... Crazy stories about me. I used to frighten easily when I was asleep. And I wake up in the middle of the night. One time when we first got married, ask my wife the next time you see her. When we first got married, I dreamed uh, 
I dreamed that I was playing basketball, and I got a rebound away from somebody, and I yanked it away like that, and then I woke up. And we were been married like six months, and she's there in bed beside me, and she's sitting up crying. So I'm rubbing my eyes, and I'm thinking, do women cry all the time? <laughs> this is how I was. I said, what's wrong? She said, you hit me in the face. I said, what? She said, you went like this and hit me in the face. I said, Oh, the rebound. I had the ball. I did like that. So she started. She said, okay, I'm going to move a little bit farther away in the bed in case you have any more dreams like that. He's frightened at midnight. And here's another subject for you Bible students. Go look in the Bible, all the things that happened at midnight. At midnight, the angel of the Lord went out and killed all the firstborn in Egypt. At midnight, Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. He wrestled until dawn with the angel of the Lord. At midnight, Paul and Silas were singing hymns in the jail there in Philippi. And there's more than that. There's lots more than that. The Lord on the mountain praying at midnight and the disciples out rowing on the sea. God works at the nighttime. And sometimes things happen and not in the ordinary hours of the meeting. I got saved at midnight. I couldn't sleep that night. In the book of Esther, when they were about to destroy all the Jews, it says that night could not the king sleep. God worked. He took the sleep away from the king to find out what was happening. The reading the chronicles and finding out. God works in the night hours. I'm glad he does. It says, he that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. You can go to bed and rest. God is on duty. He's working. So this man is frightened. He's startled because he doesn't know who this, who is that. And she says, it's me, your handmaid, he says. She says, verse 9, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over me. That word skirt means garment. It doesn't mean men wore skirts. It means your tunic or your garment. Spread it over me. It's an expression. It means take me under your wing and care for me, for you are a kinsman redeemer. Thou art a near kinsman. You're one of the ones. That's what that means. Who can redeem us? She called herself his handmaid. And she stayed at his feet. Sarah called Abraham Lord. I can't see too many modern women using either one of those words in their relationship with their husband. And don't any of you husbands tell them they ought to do it. (laughs) You're going to get yourself in trouble and me too. (laughs) But you should have the kind of relationship. There should be this kind of relationship between a man and a woman. Look, here's a way of... A marriage blessed by God started with this humble woman who was willing to be a servant. Years later, when David was an old man and the queen came in to see him, the queen came in to see him. She she bowed down before him and she said, my lord, the king. She called him my lord. There's respect and honor in this relationship right from the beginning. And they didn't do anything they were going to be ashamed of later. 
She stayed at his feet. He said, you're blessed, my daughter. Another blessing for her. And he calls her my daughter. You notice that. He doesn't use any other names with her. You've shown me more kindness at the end than the beginning. Because you're not following the young men, whether poor or rich. You're not chasing after the young men. She's just been working and living with her mother-in-law. Working and living with her mother-in-law. And now she comes to do this. And he's saying, you are a real blessing. Blessed are you of the Lord. She's not out going to different groups looking to see which one of the young men in the village she could marry. She's not trying to arrange her relationship. She's living and working and letting all of that be in the hands of God. And God arranges things. Hear me now. God arranges things better than we do. What do you think of this marriage? This is a great one. This is a marriage in the lineage of King David and of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 11, he's talking first. First, she's told him who she was and that he was a near kinsman. And then she doesn't talk anymore. All the rest of it, 10, 11, 12, 13, is all him talking. They're sitting there at in midnight. He sat up and she's down at his feet and they're talking there by the heap of grain on the threshing floor. And he's talking to her and he says, again, my daughter, verse 11, fear not. I will do all that you require. And he says, all the city knows that you are a virtuous woman. Her character, her testimony, it was known. There's virtue here at this threshing floor. There's not sensuality. There's nothing suggestive or dirty going on here. There's virtue and blessing in the name of the Lord. And they're talking about a scriptural duty. This is what's going on here. Now, if she's a virtuous woman, she's the only virtuous woman in Moab, or from Moab. The rest of the Moabites are famous. We don't have time to look at it, but you go back and read in Numbers 25. Write it down, Numbers 25, 1 to 3, about all of the immoral, sensual behavior of the Moabites and the Midianites. And the judgment that fell on Israel for participating with them. But here's a virtuous woman, because when a woman trusts the Lord, whatever she was in the past, the same as with a man, is washed away in the blood of Christ and forgiven. And she's changed, a new person. If any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Here she is, a virtuous woman. Her price is far above rubies, Proverbs 31.10 says. And there's a lot of rocks and stones out there. A lot of pebbles out there. There's very few precious stones. And there's a lot of women in the world. There's a lot of men too, but this is talking about a woman. So I'm going to say it. There's a lot of women in the world, but they're not all virtuous. A virtuous woman is like a ruby. She's a precious stone. She's of great value to God and to those around her in a blessing. And here's one. And she came from a, a wicked, pagan background. But God has done a work in her and changed her life. Thou art a virtuous woman. And everybody knows it. Ruth never said it. She never called herself that. She didn't have to. People knew about her. We saw that in chapter 2, didn't we? It's been fully showed me all, all that you have done for your mother-in-law. 
And here he says, not only me, all the town knows. Everybody knows about you. The people that live around you know about you. They watch you more than you think they do. They know about your character. They know about your behavior. They know about your priorities. What are they learning from you? What do they learn about Christianity from us? So in this conversation, Boaz promises to help her, but he tells the truth. He shows compassion. He shows spirituality. But he's truthful, he says. Now, the truth is there's another kinsman who's nearer than me. He could have hid that from her, but he didn't. He told the truth. He said, there's another one. He's nearer. Now, tomorrow, I'll talk to him. You see, he says that. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning. He doesn't say, I'll try to talk to him sometime this week. He knew that this woman needed a resolution to her situation. He says, in the morning, I'll talk to her. I'll talk to him. And he did it. It's like him saying, I'm on it. Relax. I'm on it. If he'll perform the part of a kinsman, let him do it. If he won't, then I'll do it. As the Lord liveth, he says. And again, he says, lie down until the morning. So she did. Says so she lay at his feet, verse 14, until the morning. I don't know if either one of them slept any the rest of that night, do you? What's going through his mind? What's going through her mind? They're thinking. But that's all. She lay at his feet. She never moved. She didn't say, well, uh, as long as we're going to get married, you hear this kind of reasoning sometimes. She stayed at his feet. You see, first, uh, or Titus 1.15 says, to the pure, all things are pure. When we read this, we shouldn't see anything impure because there's nothing impure there. But people who have a defiled conscience and heart, when they read things like this, at every turn, they imagine things that aren't. There's nothing impure here at all. As the Lord liveth, lie down to the morning. So, now we're going to see his, not only his uh, concern for her and his promise to her, but we're going to see his wise behavior, his prudence. He says, uh, before it's light, better to go ahead and leave. Let it not be known a woman came to the threshing floor. Why? For the simple reason that people talk, tongues wag, and they would all be wrong. Is it better go on back now? She stayed there the night because she was protected. She couldn't go home, walk back at night alone. So she stayed there, and in the morning now, go back. And he gives her the barley to take. He says, bring the veil that you have on her. Have on Because they had a kind of, it's a big shawl, a wrap around. It could also be a veil they could pull over them. It wasn't one of these little doily things. You know, you couldn't get much grain in one of those. You know, this is the kind of thing they carried. And so she took it off and held it out there like that. And some of the clothes that modern women wear, there wouldn't be enough to put a, a tablespoonful of anything in there. And she takes this shawl off and she holds it out there. And he's putting in six measures, you know, a measure and another measure and another measure. And he's loading her down with all this to take back. Why did he do that? Probably because what we have in Ephesians 1 about ourselves is a sign, a pledge of goodwill and a promise to fulfill, a promise that he will fulfill his word. In Ephesians 1, we're told that we were sealed when we believed we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We're sealed with him until the day of redemption. 
The Lord has given us the Holy Spirit, those of us who believe. It's like those six measures of barley. He's given us a sign of his goodwill and his intention to carry through what he said he was going to do. And he's going to do it. And we're going to be there with him. And that's the sign. But it's also something else. In verse 17, we'll come to it. But let's come to the conversation here. In verses 16 to 18, and we're going to finish. This is the expectation. She goes back, and her mother-in-law says to her, Who art thou? Who are you? Now, some modern versions miss it. They change. I'm not sure what one you're reading, but uh, they change the wording around there to try to make it more like modern English. But the thought here is, how are you called? Or, Or what's your identity? This is the thought. Because what she wants to know is, Did you come back from the threshing floor, a woman who is betrothed, a woman who's engaged? Uh, Is your family name the same? Is your relationship? Are you the same person? Who are you? She's not saying because she doesn't know who's at the door. She's asking her, what happened? Who are you? So she tells her. What does she tell her? Verse 16, look at the end of it. Here's the transparency of Ruth. She told her all. She didn't say, no, I went. I went down there, like you said, and, you know, we talked and all, and it's cool. (laughs) You, one day, those who are teenagers will be parents, and then they will understand what it's like when you're on the other side of the table And you're asking a question, and you get these limited general answers. What would you do yesterday? Oh, we just hung out. Oh, just friends. I'm not telling. You would say, give it up. (laughs) Oh, they don't want to. Stay out of my life. She told her all, she said. Everything, everything. Everything he had done, what does that mean? Not that he did something physically to her. He's talking about the relationship they had, the conversation they had, the promises that he made, what he told her about the other Redeemer. She told her everything. She laid it all out on the table. There's nothing left to doubt or to imagination. And that's healthy in a relationship. When people are open with one another and nothing is left to the, for the imagination to work and to wonder what really happened and what's going on. So her mother-in-law gives her advice after she receives the barley. Verse 17, she receives the barley. Go not empty to thy mother-in-law, he said. Isn't that wonderful? This is the other reason he gave it, not just as a sign or a pledge of his goodwill. But he's thinking about that woman, that widow woman back at home. He said, take her some barley. Take her some barley. And take some barley because you've been to the threshing floor. And people, if anybody sees you, they'll say you're coming with barley. But take some to your mother-in-law. Don't go empty. Don't go empty. God doesn't send people away empty-handed. Don't go empty. Where do we have that word empty in chapter 1? I went out full and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Oh, Naomi. You're not going to have empty hands with the Lord. Here, six measures of barley. And she's going to get even more in the next chapter. Go not empty. 
in the New Testament, they're told about, in the book of Titus, for example, about Zenos and Apollos, the men who were going to, to visit in Crete and preach the word of God. And he says, bring them along their way and uh, help them so that they are not lacking in anything. It means don't send them away empty. And this is the idea. God is generous with us, isn't he? And the generosity of God is supposed to be reproduced. And here it is in a pious Jew, in in a believing Jew, in an Israelite indeed. He's generous from beginning to end, isn't he? And here's the advice. Sit still. Sit still until thou know how the matter will fall. Don't go down to the gate. Don't go down there and talk to them. Don't call anybody. Don't go visit anybody. Don't try to manipulate it. Sit. Let them work it out. God has a plan. Don't get in there and put your hand on the scales and try to tip it one way or the other. Let it alone. Let him work it out. Sit still. He says, the man will not be in rest until he has finished the thing. And I love those last two words. This day. So Boaz gave you a promise. He's a man of his word. He's going to do it. He's going to finish it this day. You just rest at home. Don't worry about it. You gave it to someone who fulfills his word. I'm glad that our redemption depends on someone who came from heaven to do the Father's will. And he didn't rest. Until he finished it. And hanging there on the cross at Calvary, when his work was done, he said, it is finished. He finished it. And in the New Testament, we read that after he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Isn't that wonderful? He finished the work. I finished the work thou gavest me to do. And that's why there's anybody here tonight who's looking to have forgiveness of sin, who's looking to have salvation, who's looking to have a new life, God can give that because Christ has already done it. You can't buy it by labor, by promises, by reforms, by efforts, or by anything else, by any kind of religion. God has sent a Redeemer into this world who paid the price at the cross of Calvary to make us His. And He finished the work. All we have to do is trust in him shall we pray heavenly father we give thanks tonight for the lessons that we have from the trust of ruth in her life and we think how these lessons these things that were written aforetime were written for our instruction how you want us to trust and to honor and to obey how you want us to wait and to trust on you and to not be manipulators how you want us to take the advice and the counsel from your word and to do it all we know that this is the way of blessing and we pray that you would help us to walk in it we thank you for showing it to us we know that you show it to us because you love us and you want to do us good bless us now as we go our ways we pray in the name of the lord jesus amen